We are marching our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and this week we arrive in Ecclesiastes 10. We've got a couple to go, uh, concluding with Ecclesiastes 12. This week, uh, Solomon, also known as the preacher in Ecclesiastes, as the author of this book of the Bible that conforms to wisdom genre. It's wisdom literature. Wisdom literature in the Bible includes Proverbs. And this week, uh, the preacher Solomon is proverbial. And as I looked at this text in the course of this week, I thought and told Justin uh, it was going to be very challenging because it's Proverbs. And you can imagine in your own private devotions, when you go through the book of Proverbs, it can be rather uh, challenging because each chapter, seem, every verse seems to have its own theme. And so as I looked at this and I said, oh my goodness, where's the thread? It emerged in the course of the week to be leadership. And not simply leadership, but poor leadership. And that leadership that is over us can create a hardship. It can create not only frustrations, but it can create challenges. He says in verse 4, if the anger of the ruler, that is, if someone in leadership over you is angry, and they rise against you. Maybe you're blamed for something, you're falsely accused, or you're criticized, or even corrected in an angry manner. Don't leave for calmness. And that word means healing. will lay great offenses to rest. That all of us may have, in some area, a foolish or a poor leader. Even in the church, it could be me. And I am quite sure and certain that there are areas in this ministry of Two Rivers that I'm giving poor, albeit not intending to be foolish, leadership. Perhaps it's the elders. Perhaps it's your employer. Perhaps it's a a parent if you're a young person. Perhaps it is a teacher. It can be anyone as an employer, or even governmentally, that is over us in a position of authority in our life. And something there is not right. And the trickle down to us is burdensome. Solomon opens up in verse 1 here with an illustration that talks about his frustration or where he's looking He's looking like a scientist at everything. He's looking like a philosopher. He's interpreting things that he sees in this life. And he's reasoning it out. And he says, once again, this is meaningless. It's vanity. Or as he says here in verse 5, it's actually evil. Verse 5 and 6 is the theme. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an era proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich set in a low place. 
Now that is a general proverb where God says, in general, a life principle is that those who are godly, those who follow the Lord and obey the Lord and observe His ways, even as they were promised, going into the promised land, if you incline your heart to me, if you listen to me, if you follow my words, if you obey my statutes, if you trust me and do not give your heart to an idol, I will bless you. The diseases of the Egyptians will not be yours. You will prosper. The land will yield its fruit to you. You will become rich. But if you do not, you will become impoverished in your folly. Now that's a general truth. And what Solomon is saying this morning, this preacher is saying, here's what I find evil about our world. That I look around, and in leadership, there are those that are foolish, and then the wise are not in that high place of leadership. They're basically in the low place. They're not over us. And he starts in verse 1 with an illustration. And he talks about the perfumer. The perfumer who has a problem. The ancient art of making perfume took a lot of time. And in the, it took a lot of skill to get the chemistry right. And it took a lot of patience from the one that was doing this. That they would, at times, they would blend and they would fuse the elements together they would put some in at one point and then let them rest. And then they would come and give a stir and then they would add other elements. At times it was necessary to expose them to the sun and other times to keep them in the dark and the cool. It took an incredibly, incredible long time. And in whatever container the mix of the perfume was in, there could arise... When the perfumer went to smell and see what is the progress of this perfume. There was a certain odor to his skilled nose that said, Oh, that stinks. And he would look down and perhaps in the bottom, a fly attracted to that sweet odor had landed in the mix and died. And so this wonderful smell, this, this wonderful thing of perfume, one little fly ruined it. One little fly. One individual fool ruined, gave it a stinky Smell. I almost entitled this morning's message, When Sweet Goes to Stink. And in the model of leadership, as Solomon looks at this, he really gives us more the qualities of a poor or a foolish leader. And I want to show you three observations about that. But he gives us a, a model of a poor or foolish leader in the context of this world, the, 
the, a poor leader in authority over us from, again, from that range of a spiritual leader to a government official, when a fool or a poor leader is over us, what could be so wonderful and so sweet? This organization could be so sweet. It could just hum and, and sing and, and be so happy. One bad leader can just make it stink. Without further ado, let's look at the scriptures this morning. He says, one way that we see uh, foolish leaders is where they arise. A leader's heart leans right or left, and so they lead right or left. A foolish leader's heart leans toward the left. A wise leader's heart leans toward the right. And according to where the heart leans or what it leans upon, then the outcome and the consequence is reflected in leadership. This is, it's an interesting study because whenever the Bible uses right or left, you know, we talk about that in terms of politics too, don't we? Oh, he's right wing or he's left wing. It started when the Bible began the first time that it ever used right or left, it pertained to God's own hand. His right hand is significant because it communicates two things. If it comes from God's right hand, then it is either a display of power and strength or it's a display of blessing and affection. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 6, we read, Your right hand, O Lord, Glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Exodus 15, 12. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. This is referring back to the parting of the waters with his right hand. Guiding them, keeping those waters back by his hand. And then, after having parted the waters by his hand, through Moses raising his hand with the staff over them, he he closes them back up. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. They just disappeared in the bottom of the sea. Psalm 16 verse 11 talks about the blessing that comes from the right. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The place that we want to be, we being Christians, those of us who have been won by the strong, mighty hand of God who has slayed our enemy, who has defeated the power of sin and death in our life, the place that we want to be is at His right hand. We want to be intimate with Him. We want to be loved there. Psalm 17.7, I think, puts them both together. Wondrously show your steadfast love. How? How does God show His steadfast love? 
O Savior of those who seek refuge from an enemy, from their adversaries at your right hand. I imagine a a father to a son or a daughter. I'm afraid. I'm attacked. I'm pursued. And that hand not only holds back the enemy, but it holds in its steadfast love the son and the daughter. All this the wise know. The wise in the Bible, when it says they lean to the right, or their heart here is inclined to the right, is to say it's inclined to God. It trusts Him. And leadership flows from that. A Christian leader in authority over you, pastor, elders, look not simply to their own left-hand skill in leadership, though that is extremely beneficial. Look more to their heart. Does it lean to the right hand of God? Or in other words, is a leader over you and It could be the spiritual leader in your home. Are they more self-reliant? That's the left. Are they more God-reliant? Is their first resort to roll up their sleeves and let me do something, whether it's right or wrong? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna speak my mind. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna make up a plan. Or is it to pray, God, what is your plan? Secondly, the right order of leadership is often broken into disorder. Notice in verse 3, he says, when the fool walks on the road, he says to everybody that he is a fool. By the very direction, by, by simply the manner of his walking, he's walking left. And if the anger, and I've talked about that, but if the anger rises against you, do not leave your place. That there's, there's a tendency for all anger and leadership to have at its root frustration. Things are not going my way. In other words, things begin to break down and fail and anger from the top, the leadership, begins to manifest itself. And then he says in verse 6 that folly is in a high place and richer in a low place. And in verse 7, I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground. This is... It bears a moment to talk about the right order of leadership versus it breaking down into disorder with slaves or princes. Uh, Eugene Peterson in the message, here's his translation of that verse in his Bible, the message. Immaturity is given a place of prominence while maturity is made to take a back seat. I have seen unproven upstarts riding in style while experienced veterans are put to pasture. We're distracted by this passage because we're triggered when we read the word slave. And we're thinking, how judgmental. How judgmental that the preacher should say, it's not right for slaves to be on a horse. 
And what's wrong with princes walking for a while instead of being in the seat of power? He's not talking about American slavery. He's not talking about the cruelties, the abuse, the, the, the mistreatment of human beings. What he's talking about is getting back to that general principle that those enslaved at this point many times were there for various reasons. They had either sold themselves because of their debt into bondage or perhaps they were from a foreign nation and that nation making war against Israel had been taken captive and their people enslaved to be the servants. But there was no mistreatment at that time of slaves. In fact, God's own word says, do not mistreat the slave, the servant, or the sojourner among you. The very fight that we have in America, the the abolition movement, came from Christians who based their argument of human rights on the Scripture and God's mandate that as He has created all humans, that they are to be treated equally and without superior standards that judges another human being to be subhuman. So we're not talking about that. It's a generalization to say those that are least educated, those that are least experienced, or as Eugene Peterson put it, immature upstarts are suddenly put on a high horse. And those who are skilled, trained, educated, wise, leaning to the right, are in the ditch. And he said, that creates a disorder. That creates a disorder. That is broken. That is not right. That saddens, and it looks like it surprises him. But as Christians, we're not surprised by this. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where men and women who lean to the left and out of that flows their leadership, they're going to lead with self first in mind. They are going to lead out of the techniques and the skills of men. Maybe they will lead with fear of consequences visited upon us. Maybe they will guilt us into doing things. Maybe they will gossip and get others against us. Who who knows the the myriad of ways. Ecclesiastes looks at that and says, it's broken. When we have poor or foolish leaders over us, that wasn't the way that God intended For His kingdom to work. Or for His people to be led. No, we read in Luke chapter 9 verse 11. That the the signature of Jesus' ministry was. When the crowds learned it. When the crowds learned here in Luke 9 of Jesus' presence. He comes into their region. They followed Him. He welcomed them. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God. Can you imagine what that conversation was like? 
I believe that he would have in that conversation, and we read in the Gospels uh, at the end of John, all the words and all the messages and all the sermons of Jesus are not recorded. If they were, it would fill every library in the world. But can you imagine what this message, which is a signature of his ministry, to preach good news, and that good news is of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is even now in their midst, a kingdom of God that one day, one day, they can be members and citizens of and will, by His promise, come. I believe that in talking to them about the kingdom of God, whether He said it by contrast or whether they just knew it, they could say, what we're experiencing right now what we're experiencing right now in Israel is not wise leadership. It's the kingdom of man over us. And it is oppressive. And we are groaning under it. And as he began to talk about the kingdom of God, it became good news. It set captive hearts free. It said there is another kingdom. And that is what you're destined to receive, and to live in now. And He cured those who had need of healing. I believe He cured not only physical diseases, but emotional, mental, certainly, relational needs. How will you know the King? The hands of the King are healing hands. And as he begins to proclaim his kingdom, then things are restored. Things are healed. And then in Luke 9, verse 2, he sent out the twelve to do what? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. I apply this to all disciples of Jesus Christ. Is the hope of the kingdom of God in your heart? Is the hope of the kingdom of God in your heart as good news? Are you proclaiming that kingdom even without words, by your joy in the workplace, by your ability to endure even a foolish leader over you because you're living now like an exile under another king, the kingdom of this world, but living as an exile and a citizen of another country that one day your king will come. But right now, your king Jesus, as we saw in his life, he was not enthroned. He was walking dusty streets and on the road. Little did people know that he was the wise one. He was the prince of heaven. And Rome and other Jewish leaders were enthroned on a high horse. There was something disordered about it. But Jesus said it won't always be that way. I read uh, recently um, the producer of Fixer Upper, which has been one of the most popular TV series ever. So Fixer Upper is attractive. It's like Chick-fil-A on TV. I don't know anybody that hates Fixer Upper. Um, we, uh, 
if we have an opportunity, we will watch reruns. Um, and having seen it before, but still watch it again. And the producer was interviewed, and, he said, and they asked him this question. What do you think makes it so popular? Why do, why do people like Fixer Upper? And he said, quote, When audiences watch Fixer Upper, they don't identify primarily with the Gaineses. You know, the, the, the quirky guy. He's the repair dude, you know, and, and in the opening scenes as they, they, they finally pick a house that they're going to remodel with this couple and, uh, and, and they just look at this house that is in so need of improvement and then he comes in and one of the opening scenes is of him with a sledgehammer and he just loves tearing into a wall. And then, of course, she's got the eye for design and decoration, but he said people don't identify with the Gaineses. They don't say, oh, I'm like her, or I want to be like him. They don't even imagine themselves as the couple buying the home. They identify with the house. They don't identify with the Gaineses. They don't identify with the couple buying the, buying the house. They identify with the house that's going to be improved. The Gaineses restore things. And they watch Fixer Upper as this house is remodeled, restored, improved. And that is the longing that this producer has tapped into, either accidentally or intentionally. We, we just salivate. I, I can miss the first half of the program or three quarters, but I don't want to miss the end as to how it's been restored. Jesus, I believe, is the one that said there is a right order of leadership. But unlike Ecclesiastes, the preacher here, don't be surprised in this fallen world. In fact, you can expect it. To see that our world is often broken into disorder. Verse, verses 9, verses 8 and beyond began to describe the sadness, a sad kingdom that seeks for itself, that seeks its own way, its own entitlement. But there's also a happy kingdom, a happy land. It says, in verse 17, Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. There's two kingdoms that are pitted against one another. And he goes on to begin to describe many of the qualities of a sad kingdom. He says in verse 16, Woe to you, O land. It's mournful. It's sad. It's depressing. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, when the ruler over you is immature, and the princes feast in the morning. When those leaders around this king who is so young, so immature, so full of himself or herself, has just surrounded himself with advisors. There's, there are implications. There are implications to the kingdom and the implications to their rule are consequences visited upon you. 
He said, but there's also another way. Another way. And it's a happy land where the king over us seeks our good. Look back to verse 8. Beginning with verse 8, he talks about things that are, are very common things. Very common projects. Very common things. But they become, with a fool and his leadership, they become accident prone. Digging a pit and falling into it. A serpent biting you when you're tearing down or remodeling a wall. The image being that this leader does not set up the proper proper boundaries. Digging a hole and there's no guardrail. Working on a a stone wall with its little cubby holes and everything. There's no warning or caution. Be careful where you stick your your hand. It might be in an adder or viper's lair. And he said, is it little wonder? And when we follow someone like that, that they fall in the hole or we fall in the hole? Cutting corners. He says this leader has to work extra hard because he's not sharpening the iron. And we we know that it's Proverbs that Solomon also wrote that talks about how that iron is sharpened. That, That iron is sharpened by other wise people or sharpened by other wise people. The company that we keep. Wise people are sharpened by God's Word that we we learn from Him. But not the fool. The serpent bites before it's charmed. There's no advantage to the, the charmer. There's multiple failures. or multiple serpent bites because things are not being managed well. There's all sorts of Meetings that are starting to take place about, wow, here's another problem this week that is bitten us in the arm. Verse 12, the words, the words, they they consume him. And this is not simply say, this is not to say that the foolish leader over us or the poor leader over us is the, the words destroy them. No, they have a lot of words that they will throw at it. The wise in Proverbs are known to be those that can pray, quietly consider, take counsel. The fool just throws words at it. Multiplies words, it says in verse 14. Toil in verse 15 is something to be avoided. So much so that when it says he doesn't know the way of the city, it say the city marketplace, because he's not accustomed to hard work or he doesn't welcome the long nights or the hard work in leadership over us, the strategies, the planning, the praying, the patience, the perseverance, because he shortcuts things, he doesn't know the direction to the city market. Can't ever bring a project home. Can't ever ensure success. Now again, some of you are saying, man, you You must either be in my house or my workplace. Maybe even my church. The the wise don't have a skill set that would make them any different. The wise 
learn and are under their king who is God. The wise lead as they are led from God's word in fellowship with God's people by God's Holy Spirit. There is perhaps many of you that have had to endure a lot of these consequences of poor leadership. And as I end, I want to tell you two things. I want to tell you something that you are commanded to not do. And something that you are encouraged to do. First of all, you're commanded in verse 20 that even in your thoughts to not curse. Don't curse. Don't curse the poor leader or foolish leader over you. Even in your thoughts. It's not enough to not gossip about them or criticize them, but in your heart, in your mind, don't grouse, don't complain, don't grumble. Wow. How do you stop? I believe that the way you stop is not natural to us. But I believe that the way you stop is that you understand that a sovereign God who is your rightful king, Christian, has placed even the poor and foolish leader over you. Take that as a prompt for your heart to long for the kingdom to come. For you to certainly pray about that kingdom to be visited and that rule, that king's rule in your workplace, in your home, in your church. Pray for that. Pray that God would replace or rise up godly leaders that trust and follow God and are representative of His will and His way which makes for a happy land. But until then... Replace grumbling and complaining. Let that be from God a prompt to your heart to make you homesick for the kingdom to come. A kingdom that we're told in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw, I see, see this in your mind's eye. I saw the holy city. Fill your thoughts instead of cursing. Fill your thoughts with a city to come. A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He takes his rightful place now. No longer is he distant, but he's right with us and at his right hand we are along with Christ he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God he will wipe away every tear from their eye death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away So we're given, we're given something that Solomon did not have. 
it is very likely as Ecclesiastes was written at the end of his life, that his firstborn son, Rehoboam, was somewhere about the palace as he wrote. And he was given consideration to who will follow me as king. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 12 that when Rehoboam did, following his father's death, come to the throne, he surrounded himself with young immature advisors and he sent for the old advisors to his father and he says what can I do to have a happy kingdom and they said well you can lighten the load of people instead of serving yourself you can serve the people lighten their load carry their burdens and it will be a happy kingdom he went back to his young advisors and they said oh no 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 that's weak That's weak. Tell those old advisors, forget it. That I'm actually going to increase the load. Perhaps Solomon already had some sense of foreshadowing. He didn't know that there would come to this land another one who would be king. Another one who would proclaim his kingdom, Jesus Christ. He didn't know that there would be a people who would Respond to His voice. And in responding, receiving the gospel, in becoming citizens, by repenting and saying, I am going to make you king of my life, that they now have a hope. They now have a hope that will allow them to endure even the poorest leadership that will but prompt their heart to look forward to the day of His heavenly kingdom rule over us in the new heaven and the new earth. May this table, may God's word fuel our hopes that we are citizens of his kingdom and we have a good and gracious king who rules and reigns over us even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would set aside this bread and this cup And that you would remind us that this is a taste, but a taste, of a feast that we will have in the new kingdom. In the new heaven and the new earth where you will be with us, you will serve us from this table. And Jesus, for the first time since you left, you'll raise the glass of wine. We will eat there bread that does gladden the heart and wine that cheers and gives joy. For you will be our king forever. And the memory of this world and its kings and kingdoms will pass away so quickly. So even now, feed our hope. Feed our hope that we might live as citizens of that kingdom now. Feed us till we want no more, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.